Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bellotti, and today I am really excited to have Willie Tran, who is a Principal Growth PM at Calendly, uh, here with us today. Willie, thanks so much for joining. Hi, thank you. Absolutely. So I, I caught up with Willie a, a few weeks back and realized he's got some really good, solid hot takes about growth stuff that maybe isn't like your classic standard viewpoints on things. So we're going to talk through like cultural growth teams, uh, talk through experimentation and some other stuff along the way. Uh, Willie's got a, a background uh, doing a ton of growth stuff, scaling up some teams. Uh, so Willie, why don't you give a little bit more of a quick background on yourself and then we'll go ahead and jump on in. Yeah. Hey. Um, hi there. My name is Willie. I'm leading product growth at Calendly. Um, before this, I helped kind of scale up uh, and kind of help build out product growth teams at Mailchimp and Dropbox. All right, let's let's go ahead and dive right in. So, let's start with some culture stuff around growth teams. One thing that you had mentioned to me was you're against a culture of quote unquote winning. Uh, what does that mean to you in the context of growth teams? Well. I hate winning. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I, I think I think a lot of times growth teams, we see that they focus a lot on like, let's just pump out winning experiments, right? Um, and they only talk about experiments that are like stat state positive. And like, that's fair, right? Like, I, I think if you tell, if I think most growth teams are like, yeah, what's wrong with that? We should just talk about how we're moving the number. Like, and it makes like total sense. So, but however, I find that there's a lot of kind of longer term issues with that, that people don't realize or don't understand, or if you haven't been a part of like a more tenured growth team. Um, so I guess, so kind of talk about it. Let's like walk through essentially how product growth teams are usually started at most companies. And, you know, if this isn't, you know, as your listener, if this isn't you, Congratulations, right? But from, from my time talking with a lot of people who are starting product growth teams, this is how it usually starts. So you have a person, right? They're usually kind of like a maybe PM or maybe they're kind of a higher level, but not at the very top. Um, they're, they're excited. They hear about this experimentation thing or they hear about like PLG and they're like, oh man, we've got to have one of these, right? We've got to have one of these. They're, they're so hot right now. It's Essentially, imagine, you know, <laughs> you know, moving the number without having to put a lot of money in it, even though product growth teams are incredibly expensive. <laughs> like, um, so this person usually pitches some kind of experimentation program, some kind of PLG program to leadership, right? And leadership usually will have like an executive sponsor, but they'll eventually get buy-in. They'll be like, okay, cool. Let's, 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 do, let's give this a shot. You know, here's a couple engineers, like literally like two and like half a designer, go, go, go figure this out. Right. And the, usually the platform this person pitches it on is like, we're going to move this number. And usually that number is like activation or, or acquisition. Right. Um, and as, so like, once you get that approval, you're kind of expected to deliver some results, right. To, to justify this. And from the time frame that I've seen, it's usually like six months that like you're expected to produce some result to justify this investment on a company level within six months, you have to get something. And uh, understandably, this is kind of nerve wracking. This can be nerve wracking for the person who, who pitched this. 
So what usually ends up happening is they'll come up with a strategy where they just focus on delivering like just a ton of experiments. They're just pumping stuff out to super high velocity, um, which like can be okay if your objective is to build the muscle of experimentation, running experiments from designing it, building it, um, analyzing it, extrapolating results and learnings, right? That, that can be like, okay to build that muscle. Um, but the problem is, is when you, it sounds crazy, but the problem is, is when you have a lot of wins, um, which this surprises a lot of people, right? Cause that's like what they're going for. Yeah. Isn't that the good thing? That's the good thing, right? But actually it, it is a good thing, but it, only in the way in which you manage how you deliver these wins and, and what you focus on. So if you have a lot of these wins and you will, right, you almost always will, um, you're essentially putting a signal out to the rest of the company that, Hey, look how valuable we are because we're winning. Look how much we move the metric by. Right. And that's all you're focusing on. That's the delivery, right? Cause that, cause you, you're, you're trying to justify the company's investment. And then people are like, wow, this team is worth it. That's so great. And then you just kind of keep rinsing and repeating this, right? Until eventually you have this narrative across the company of the product growth team is the shit, right? <laughs> like, like, look how much they're moving the number by. Anyways, so I think like I'd imagine for the listener right now, you're probably thinking, yeah, this is great. Well, what's the issue, Willie? Right? Um, so the problem is that you're probably not factoring in that you will hit diminishing returns. Right. So what are diminishing returns? Essentially, your rate of winning, right, is going to decrease over time because when product growth teams are started, they're usually created and their first things are to pick up all that low hanging fruit. And I've never seen a company that didn't hit diminishing returns. Okay. I've never seen it. And you usually, depends on how much traffic and opportunity you have, like you'll hit it within a year. Okay. So and um, at some point, once you hit diminishing returns, you'll notice that your experiments, they're not, you're not winning as much anymore. Now, this is a problem, right? Because if you have pitched your, comp your, your, your team as the team that wins, and then you're not winning anymore, all of a sudden, your team's perceived value is no longer as high as it used to be. So this is, this is really bad, right? And this is why I often see growth teams actually get disbanded after a year. Um, which is terrible, right? So what do we do? <laughs> you just wave your hands up and just wave the, <laughs> wave the white flag, Matt. No, um, yeah, every, every, growth tier, every growth team just has a one-year lifespan, and that's the end of that. That's it. That's over. All right, Alan, this is a great time talking to you all. So, all right. so, <laughs> so the, the, the strategy or the kind of the meta strategy or narrative that I've found to work really well is instead of focusing on winning, focus on learnings. And it's, it sounds somewhat similar, but it's, it's, it's actually quite different in, in a lot of details, right? Because if you focus on learning, what will happen is you will get more wins over time because you're learning about the user, you're learning about their problem, you're learning you know, what are the real experiments you're trying to, you should be running to keep, I mean, keep winning, right? And, and, and something I believe is the more you learn, the more you earn. I think that's true as an individual. I think it's true as a, as a growth team. 
Um, and not only that, if you purely position yourself as a growth team that, you know, you're the only people who run experiments, right? Um, and you, um, and you're, you're, look how much you're moving the number. What will also end up happening, from my experience at least, is this kind of paints a target on your back from other core product teams. Because it'll start to hype up this idea of experimentation across your company, which is great signal. And then usually leaders of the core product team, for my, again, this is just my experience, is they'll be like, hey, core PM, why aren't you running experiments? And then this, this is kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> this kind of, you know, <laughs> makes the core PM be like, shit, I'm, I'm being measured on something else, you know, <laughs> as a, you know, <laughs> Listener, I, I am uh, Asian and I, I, I went through school and my father was kind of like, hey, uh, your friend was on the stage, graduated with honors. Why didn't you graduate with honors? It, it's kind of a similar thing. And I'm like, God damn it, Michael. Like, why? <laughs> so um, anyways, so it's kind of creates that effect, right? Where the core product teams kind of sees the growth team can either see them as a threat Right, which may be speaking more so to the culture of your company, but um, but instead of doing that, right, you should avoid that. Instead, when you create learnings, you create evergreen value, and this is really important because if your if your growth team is only known for winning and moving the number, again, when you stop moving the number, you won't be as valuable anymore. But if you kind of leverage the learnings to create evergreen value to lift other product teams to help them build better experiences that also move the number, because it should be everyone's job to move the number, right? Then your product growth team will be more valuable to the rest of the company beyond just the winnings, right? Because you're not just creating winnings localized core product, or sorry, the product growth, but you're creating winnings across the entire company. And that's so incredibly valuable, like so incredibly valuable. Um, then everyone wants to work with you. Everyone wants to run experiments. And everyone wants to just, everyone just sees how valuable you are as a team. Love this. I think that the, the focus on learnings makes a ton of sense for the longevity of the team. The like learn so that others can take action too is amazing. You know, I'm listening to this and, and, and thinking of like other people listening uh, and like, oh, Willie, it sounds like maybe, are you saying I shouldn't do the like low hanging fruit wins? Like, are these mutually exclusive things? Can I do them together? Can I still get the wins? Uh, no, I, I think you should totally do the low hanging fruit, right? Like at, at the end of the day, you still have that pressure and, and like, and so you should absolutely do it. I would say do that while you're doing that, figure out a strategy that helps you learn about the user right? Learn about the user's mentality. Like this is really important um, because the strategy that you create as a product growth team will be based off of the problems that the user has. Again, this is not terribly dissimilar from a core product team, right? Um, and at the beginning, I'd say, so it's concurrently while you're doing these low hanging fruit experiments, do a lot of user research, right? Fig ask a lot of questions around about who your user is and what are the behaviors that you're having. Um, and this is a common problem that I'm seeing, right? That, that I've seen when talking to other product growth teams is they usually come in with tactics, right? And I, I see this 
Yeah, a lot. Like where they come in with like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to run this experiment? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they go design it and they run it, right? And that's like fine for like low-hanging fruit, again, building your muscle. But while you're doing that, instead, the first thing you should be doing actually is come in with questions. Questions are so much more important than tactics. Um, tactics are super easy to figure out once you have a good idea of what the problems are. But the only way you know what the problems are is by first asking questions around the user's behavior, around their mental state, around, you know, what are they looking for? What's their intent? Um, you know, what are they, what, what are they, yeah, like I believe conversion equals desire minus friction, right? Um, and uh, friction, okay, you can kind of look at the experience and kind of figure that out. But at the same time, friction is subjective too, right? Based on what the desire is. Because people think like, oh, if I just remove all the steps, then it'll be better. Well, not exactly, because sometimes people want more confidence that what they're doing is correct. So maybe adding more friction could actually be better to some extent, um, depending on what the desire is. Um, so, yeah. So, so tell me, like, what what are some examples of these types of questions? Like, you're talking about yeah. intent. Like, like, what is their intent and all that? Like, is that the type of question? Is the is the questions set up like how, how how do I build my team to do this like method of learning that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what I always do whenever I'm starting like a new team or in a new area is like the first doc I always create is a question backlog doc. And it's essentially a super collaborative process where me, my designer, my engineers, like literally anyone who wants to be involved, the UX researchers, everyone. We just brainstorm together and just ask a question, ask questions. And then we just categorize and we collect and collaborate and categorize them. So some example questions would be like, do users not use this feature because they don't know it's there? Right? Because it, like essentially you're asking, is it an awareness issue? Is it is it um, usability issue? Right. And this is something that quantitative can probably you can probably figure out via quantitative uh, analysis. Uh, another one is like, what do you use need to see your experience to know that Calendly is worth paying for, right? So like, this was a big one for when I was leading a pay conversion at Calendly, which was like, that one you're not really going to figure out via analytics. This is probably user research, which will then kind of, then you kind of test solutions via experimentation, but figuring out like, okay, what, how are they defining value, right? And we often make that up ourselves based off of what we think the product is. But we have to, you know, you know, when I was at Dropbox and, and I learned that, say like team admins, all they, what they really care about was like uh, uh, consolidated billing. That like really blew my mind. They didn't really care about things like storage and stuff like that. They just wanted to make it easier to pay for all of their team's licenses. Like that was a huge reason. Like I would never have guessed that. Um, but that's like really important because that dictates your strategy, right? Because imagine if I instead didn't do that, I didn't ask that question and we didn't figure that out. We would have just done a bunch of experiments around like trying to optimize the, the, the license invitation flow, which by the way, we did do to minimal success. And like, but, um, you know, so like things like that, it's incredibly valuable. And then another question, there's a quantitative one is like, what features are most correlated with paid conversion, right? So if you know that, you can come up with a strategy to essentially what features should you be pushing on users um, or would you be experimenting on to get users to adopt 
Whereas if you just kind of come in and throw spaghetti at the wall, you're not going to have like a good strategy, right? You're, you're, you're not going to know what problems, what's stopping people from adopting these features. Um, and that is a lot easier question to answer of how do we get users to adopt feature X than how do we get users to become a paid user? Because that's actually a really hard problem. It's a very broad because there's lots of reasons. But when you can narrow it down to a couple things, it creates a sense of inherent prioritization and focus, which is like incredibly powerful for a product growth team when it feels like you can and should be doing everything. I love this too because it it, it changes how I think about like designing of experiments. Like generally the PM and the designer are just working together to like design two to three different versions of this thing because we think we can make an impact there. Whereas what you're saying is more like the experiment design is like really just needs to be anchored in research design. It's like you should yeah. be framing like these are the three options because we believe that what we can learn from putting it in front of people will answer this question for us. A hundred percent. Like running an experiment is not figuring out is this version better than this version, right? And I think that's what a lot of people think it is because that's honestly, that's how it's been kind of pitched, right? It's the, the simplest way of understanding the value of an experiment. And, and it does kind of answer that, but that should not be the main thing. Instead, like, like you just mentioned, right? Is it's, it's about research. It's another way of doing research. And uh, it, you, when you run an experiment, you need to have questions you're trying to answer, right? For example, like a super simple one is, and this is probably most experiments, is like, do users not use feature X because they're not aware it exists? So then you'll design an experiment that just puts it right in their face, right? Yeah, you know, they are. And I think what a lot of product growth teams might do is they might over-design it. They might change a lot of variables. They'll, they'll put it over here, whatever, right? And when realistically, you should just be testing Right, and this is, this is not saying create a bad experience, but what I'm saying is, you should just be testing that initial question. Right, is is awareness the issue? So, like, make it very aware, make them very aware that it exists. And then, if we find out that, say, you know, the down funnel metric of say paid conversion doesn't doesn't move, or they don't adopt the feature, so that's a more um, closer metric. If they don't adopt the feature, well, then you can kind of definitively say that awareness is not the issue. Right. And this sounds very obvious, but what I've seen a lot of teams do is that they'll just run a lot of experiments around awareness and then, then they'll just keep running it until there's a win, quite quote unquote. And they'll be like, yeah, we got a win. But like, <laughs> but like, that's not right. Right. Instead, your experiment should probably like, you have your hierarchy strategy around your problem statements, but then your each experiment will dictate the next step that you decide to take. In this concurrent flow, sorry, in this kind of sequential flow of experiments, or concurrent if you're advanced. But like, um, but at the end of the day, you're trying to answer that question. You're trying to figure out, like, okay, well, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to this example. But is awareness the issue? And if you can answer that and definitively rule out that awareness is not the issue, I can't state how big of a finding that actually is, right? Because um, then you go, okay, well, maybe it's usability, right? And then you start running experiments there. And then you you narrow down on that problem area. You narrow down until eventually, because there is a problem, right? Otherwise, you'd have like a great conversion rate. 
So the, the problem is there, and you just ruled out that awareness wasn't the issue. That's, that's based off of inconclusive results, right? Not even a stat like positive result. You've talked about experimentation a lot. We've kind of just like walked around it. Why don't we dig into it a little bit more? I think when, when we caught up a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me was like uh, moving a number down. And I, this ties back to a lot of what we talked about so far, but like in an experiment, moving a number down is just as good, if not better than moving the number up. Tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say just as good. I don't know if I'd go so far and say better, but, 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 and this is where that, yeah, a hundred percent, like a hundred percent at the end of the day, right? Like what you're trying to figure out is where is the problem? Like, where is the problem and why people are not converting, right? And if you figure this problem out, the number will move as a byproduct of that, right? So... What I've seen a lot of companies, and this is, I mean, I've, you know, it's understandable, right? Is you see something move the metric negatively, you know, just like static negative by like, let's say 5%, whatever, right? And then you're like, oh, let's not tell anyone about that. <laughs> you just gotta, you just gotta sweep the, sweep those results under the rug. And you say, ah, okay, well, let's just keep going around. Maybe, you know, instead, I know this is hard, but you should really celebrate that. You should celebrate that you found a statsig result, positive or negative, equally. And the reason being is because if you moved a number in a statistically significant way in any direction, it means that you found an element or component that the user actually cares about. Because the hardest thing that you're really, the thing you're really battling against is apathy, right? Is the user doesn't really give a shit about this area. And your job is to find the areas in which users actually care about users, the areas that affect the flow that is getting people to say convert or whatever the desired action is. Now, this is what's known as a growth lever, right? I think we've all heard that phrase, um, but really it's just finding the areas in which users actually that has an effect on users completing this thing. Now, if it moves negatively, it does mean that you found an area that, that, that affects the user to complete that task. The only thing that was quote unquote wrong was that you moved the lever in the wrong direction, right? But what we often see is it's negative, static negative, and people just kind of like, oh, well, I'll move on to the next one. You know what I mean? And they kind of ditch it and they just like, whoa, dude, like you just found some gold and you're like choosing not to harvest. And uh, so instead you should definitely, you know, move the lever in the other direction, kind of do the opposite, you know, rethink the execution because, you know, your, your, your hypothesis, right, is, is made up of three parts. It's by execution, we'll see an increase or decrease in metric because assumption, right? And kind of a good hypothesis is, you know, at the end of the day, based on the results, you go back and you're able to question those three things. Is our execution right, wrong? Right? Was our execution wrong? Did we choose the wrong metric, which is surprisingly common? And then uh, is our assumption untrue? Right? And, uh, you know, so when, when you celebrate these kinds of statsig negative or any statsig result you, and you go back and look at that, you can kind of see, okay, maybe our execution was wrong. Right. It was negative. Our assumption is true that this area probably like affects the user or whatever. Right. 
Um, and we were probably choosing the right metric because it moved. Um, but maybe our execution was wrong, which go back and look at your execution, right? Keep testing there. You found something that makes people move, you know? Um, just do it a little bit differently. That's all. Yeah. And that's so valuable. Yeah, it, it feels like it, the easy thing to do is look at it and say, wow, we moved the number like pretty far down. The current state must be really good. Let's kind of leave it alone. And <laughs> yeah, um, cool. What, what else around experimentation uh, do you want to educate our listeners uh, around? Yeah. So something I'm like super passionate about is experiment design. And then I've kind of harped on this a little bit already, but there's like some common things that, I, that I'm kind of seeing wrong. So like one is that experiments are not ideas thought of on the fly. Um, they're like real thought out questions and hypotheses that like need to be really thought through. <laughs> It's not like if you're if your experiment is starting off as like, hey, like wouldn't it be cool if you like ran the copy experiment that like changed this and blah blah blah. You're like you're starting at the wrong place. Um, it's it's you're putting the solution before the problem, right? And uh, and a lot of people do this from what I found, and may, maybe the the tides have changed over time, but from my experience, a lot of people do this. This is pretty prevalent. Um. Instead, you know, like I said, experiments should be questions that you've really pondered about. And, and then you should really think about whether this experiment appropriately answers that question. Because you can run a, run a bad experiment, even if it has positive results. Um, and long story short, what it means is, what, what does it mean? Actually, let me, let me clarify. Like, what does a bad experiment mean? What it really means is it's an experiment that you don't learn anything from. Right. So if you like change a bunch of elements, and uh, yeah, if you change a bunch of elements, and uh, it leads to a positive result, it doesn't mean it's a good experiment because you have no idea what was the element that actually caused that result. But if you knew that, then you would be able to kind of harvest more there and try to pull out more wins. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people who right now are like, well, Willie, like, isn't it good, though, that you found something in that area that, that led to that and that there's something else in there? To which, like, my answer is like, yes, but were you deliberate about that at the very beginning, right? Like, were you aware of that, like, okay, that changing this whole area, that there's, that, that you know, changing the experience, which is where, like, there's a difference between changing the experience and changing components. And... If, you're, if your hypothesis is based around the experience, that's different. But if your hypothesis is based around like changing the component, like uh, let's say like removing this copy or, or like removing the step of the flow, whatever, that's like, that's pretty different because, um, yeah, because essentially how you can test that is different. Um, so, because there's times like if you're a smaller, if you don't have as much traffic, you know, you have to do bigger swings. You have to make more experience changes. Your experiments are made to answer your questions, not test your idea. Ah, that's good. So <laughs> I'm going to say this again, okay? Your experiments are made to answer your questions, not test your idea. And I'm sure some people are going to be like, well, that's 
same thing. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) If you're running an experiment to test your idea, it's already flawed, right? Because you're trying to just see if your idea is a good idea or or whatever. Um, And if your idea, if you run it, your idea is not a good idea, there's a good chance you won't have any learnings behind it. And if you don't produce learnings, then you're not doing a good job of actually creating that, um, let's say like non-quantitative value uh, that you have across the company. But if you're answering questions, again, you can bring those insights up to the rest of the company, right? Again, even if it's inconclusive, you say, again, going back to the awareness thing, if, if you run an experiment that tries to increase awareness of a feature and it doesn't increase adoption of said feature, then you can go to the rest of the company and say, hey, for anyone else who's thinking about trying to move adoption of this feature, just FYI, you should not focus on awareness. We ran an experiment, which you know tried to increase awareness. It didn't lead to anything. Like even though it was inconclusive, it's still that that's that's incredibly valuable. That could save a lot, another team so much time. And but if you're just testing your idea, well, there's no real learnings there, right? So that's like it's really big, and it's, it's I know it's like really difficult to avoid this, and it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm like, it's, yeah, if you like focus on the stuff and really think about the question, it 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 leads to so much increased value. Uh, for the rest of the company. Um, yeah, I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise you could wind up in a space where like your takeaways from the last three months of experiments are that the ideals from the sales reps are bad <laughs> and, you know, Joey on the team generally has the best ideas out of all of us, which to your point is like not the culture that you want. The culture is we learn that these things matter and these things don't right. Could you imagine having a culture yeah. where it's like, your Joey is awesome. Sales, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> get out of here, okay? <laughs> Leave the ideation to Joey, okay? Like, that yeah. is a terrible culture. I hope you don't have that culture. That's like, uh, uh, if you do have that culture, you should really consider leaving. <laughs> you know, that, that is, that, I couldn't imagine that. But um, yeah, so that's like when I work with other PMs and, when I'm teaching people experimentation, and this is true, a lot of core PMs will come to me and they're like, hey, we'll have this experiment idea. I'm like, well, hold on. Like, before you go into the idea, let's like really talk about, let's like go up a few levels. And I always, always prevent people from giving me their ideas. Um, and then turns out when we dive a bit deeper into the questions and, and what the idea came from, we may actually find out that that idea was actually not the best idea. Um, or rather, it's not the best way to answer the question that matters the most for them. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, anything else on experiment design that you want to cover before we move on to some of our last things here? Oh, okay. Uh, this one, this one's for the uh, people who are building out product growth strategy, which is like is like surprisingly challenging, right? Because like if your strategy is throw stuff at the wall, that's not really a strategy. Um, and furthermore, like if you think about like kind of the theory of constraints for the other supply chain nerds out there, it's like, you need to identify what is probably your biggest bottleneck and this will define your strategy. So most people's bottleneck, like the vast majority of people's bottleneck, unless you work at like Facebook or Netflix, whatever, 
is traffic, right? Is figuring out how much traffic you have and what's your current baseline conversion rates. And also assuming that most people here are operating under a frequentist kind of statistical framework and how they run experiments. So where they identify essentially how much traffic they need ahead of time in order to conclude that their experiment has a, um, is actually valid. Um, okay, so now that I've stated that, you, so if you're coming up with a strategy, you need to figure out what types of experiments you need to be able to run. And if your limiting factor is traffic, you can't control exactly, you can't really control, you can't just be like, okay, well, let me just get more traffic to come in. Like, that's not going to happen, right? And another thing you can't control, you know, not like immediately, is like, okay, well, let me just change the baseline conversion rate. Like, that's not going to happen either. The baseline conversion rate is what it is, and that's what you're trying to move via experiments. So one thing you do have control over is minimum detectable effect. And this is essentially like generally like the degree of sensitivity that your, your, your test is trying to like affect, right? Like how, it's not exactly how big of a change it is, but that's like the easiest way for me to explain it. But like, um, so like kind of a quote unquote bigger change. And really it means like the delta between your current experience versus your newest one. So it doesn't exactly mean like the most feature added or anything like that. It just means that you're, it's kind of like a the more zero to one it is as opposed to a one to n. Um, so the bigger that is, that will affect how long you need to run the experiment for, which will inherently affect, yeah, which will which will affect how many experiments you can run within a certain time frame. Um, so what I've seen a lot is people who like said so they're working like an enterprise right company and. They'll be like, okay, I want to run a bunch of experiments. So like we have a bunch of these copy experiments we run and run and and they have like like a thousand people coming to their site a month and like a really low conversion rate. And I'm like, well, you can't run any. <laughs> like, and unless like or more not so that you can't run any, but more so that you cannot do this initial high velocity strategy that you wanted to do. Right, unless you're okay with like these experiments running concurrently for you know six months at a time, right? And no one's okay with that. Uh, most people will just say like, "Oh, I'm just gonna let this experiment run for a couple of weeks." Like, where did you do the math? How did you come? I don't know. It's like, man, what? Like, so <laughs> instead, when you figure out how long your kind of let's say average experiment needs to run for, that should dictate the kind of resourcing you need in order to support this strategy, your experimentation strategy, right? Because if you do have low traffic, right, and a relatively low conversion rate, it means that you need to make a bigger change, right? It means you need to have a higher minimum detectable effect. And uh, when you change that to be higher because you're testing something that is a quote unquote bigger change, it means that you need to staff differently on the engineering side. Yet you're not just going to do copy changes and optimizations. You're going to probably do maybe even like a feature, like a net new feature add or, or, or redesigning this entire core experience to be like completely different. Um, those are the type of experiments you need to run um, to tell you kind of how much better is this experiment experience. Um, so, and so like, that's really big. And if you're like, 
listening to this and you're like new to like figuring out what your strategy is, like first thing you should be doing is figure out for like a couple of things, figure out how much traffic do you expect to have, figure out what's your baseline conversion rate. And then also in your head, kind of figure out what is your tolerance for how long you want an experiment to run for, right? Most people will say it's like three weeks, right? That's from my experience. Most people think it's like three weeks. Yeah, I want to run for three weeks. Okay, whatever, sure. So then go to like the Evan Miller sample size calculator and then like type in a baseline conversion rate number that like gets you to that number. Now, just because you typed in that number doesn't mean that's like accurate. So now you got to figure out exactly, you know, what is the right experiment you need to run in order to realistically measure that minimum detectable effect, which is, that is like actually, it's very not easy to kind of figure out. But the idea is that like, do you really think this experiment is going to move the baseline conversion rate by a relative, let's just say 15%, that's pretty big, right? Like realistically, and this is usually based off of past experiments of similar weight, but that's a whole nother thing. And it's incredibly complicating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and in that frame, you look at it and it starts to become a little bit easier to say, like, you know, you're looking at the experiment that you wanted to run. And you're just like, there's no way we could ever possibly see the number move that much from this thing. We have to instead go bigger, like right. you're saying. Experiments need to be bigger. It needs to be way more. That's different. right. Don't that's exactly like don't fall in love with this idea of an experiment, right? That's why you got to do this stuff first, because then that'll tell you what experiments you have the affordances to design and run. Because if you're like have a big backlog of copy change and image change experiments, which I hope you don't, because um, <laughs> if you do, and then you find out that you know these experiments will need to run for six months, guess what? Your entire strategy is out the window with something that you could have easily figured out in the first week. Um, so do that first and then that will dictate yeah. how you need to staff. It'll dictate how you need to operate the types of experiments you're going to run, whether you should have a growth team at all. Um, like, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, we are coming up towards time here. Uh, I, I've one other question before we go ahead and wrap. So you talked a lot about uh, like creating culture of learning and, you know, writing these questions as the framework for your experiments and all that. Um, maybe I feel like the answer to this can be a whole other podcast, but maybe give me like a condensed version of it, which is, um, you know, how do you share those learnings? Like what are some of the more effective ways that you can say, you know, we are a growth team focused on learning here is how we empower other teams. Here is how we share and document those. Like, are there any like couple quick things that you can give people pointers on, on before we wrap? Yeah. Um, part of this is really on, it's a couple of things. I think it kind of depends on where your company currently has, like what's their cadence of like these times where your product managers have this opportunity to present to the entire company and, and what they want to talk about and such. But generally speaking with every presentation I speak, I, I do any any kind of presentation, literally in front of anyone. I always try to make sure there's learning involved, right? That kind of the product growth team kind of has its association with said learning, which usually leads to other PMs, right? So it's it's really just present it frequently, right? And then sometimes though, and I, I've, I should have mentioned this earlier, but um, these learnings also dictate like this kind of framework that at least at Calendly, I, I, I kind of embedded this framework that we use, which is like you ask questions, you answer the questions via like say user research, for example, which leads to like defined problem statements, 
that around the user. So it's like, as a user, I want to, um, let's just say like, I, I want to understand the value of Calendly, but and there's like features that I want to use, but I'm not aware that they exist, right? Whatever. And then you, then for every one feature, you generally have, sorry, one problem, you have a bunch of experiments. So it has a one-to-many relationship. Then for each experiment, you will then get learnings, which will lead to more questions. And then essentially for each time you go through that cycle, you should have a learning. And then you should present said learning. But by also issuing it in this framework, it also helps the other product managers help kind of figure out how they can create action on this learning. Because you can like pitch this learning, but if it doesn't lead to action, that's an issue. And I, I find that to be often the case. So this framework kind of helps create that, that connection between like, oh, wow, this is really cool. What next, right? So, um, but when you kind of present it like that to the rest of the company, it helps them connect the dots too, which is really valuable. Cool. Well, Willie, thank you so much for joining here. This has been a ton of fun. I love the way you think about stuff. It reframes my mind on on how I approach some of this. I'm sure many people uh, that just listened through thought the same as well. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun to talk about it. Absolutely. All right. Well, for those of you listening, thank you so much for for spending your time here. Uh, We have 80 plus other episodes uh, that you can go ahead and check out with amazing growth experts interviews, talking about tactics, strategies, all that stuff. Uh, If you're a fan of this, hit subscribe so you can catch all the episodes in the future. Uh, I know there's so many things you could spend your time on, working on doing, listening to, whatever. You're spending it here listening to this, and I really appreciate it. Uh, If you were a fan, write a review, uh, give five stars. I am also always open for feedback in whatever way it might be. My email's matt at drift.com. Go ahead and drop me a note. And with that, I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks.